Um, hello, everybody, um, and apologies for a slight delay uh, with the start of the session. We've just been having technical difficulties um, and our presenters couldn't join, but now it seems we have all of them online and hopefully we can start. Um, I hope you are doing well on, on the other side. Um, don't worry if you can't um, hear anything or see anything. Hopefully, the session is recorded and we'll have a good recording um, at the end of this webinar. So, um, let's begin. Um, well, welcome um, uh, for everyone who could join um, us today. Uh, welcome to the webinar. Today, we're going to be talking um, about Australia's vehicle classification scheme, uh, focusing on measuring active transport. Uh, we had 600 people registered for this session, so we are uh, keeping our fingers crossed for all of you, hoping you can join. All right. Um, my name is Ekaterina, I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Austroads, um, and I will be moderating today's session together with Amy Knowles, um, Austroads Transport Network Operations Program Manager. Amy is one of our presenters today, and uh, she will also moderate your questions at the end of the webinar. I would like to start by acknowledging uh, the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Um, Ostrots is based in Sydney and so today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to all this past, present and emerging and to their deep and ongoing connection to the land. A little bit about Austros. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, uh, this project was delivered under the Transport Network Operations Program, which is um, managed by Amy Knowles. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, so our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have uh, some time for your questions. The slides and the publications can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, uh, which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, um, use the uh, question icon on your sidebar. Um, if your question relates to any particular slide, include the number of that slide in your message um, to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems um, but just a quick tip if you lose sound or your picture freezes the issue um, could be your internet connection so closing the browser and rejoining the session via your email registration um, usually helps so the session today is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is published on our website if you listen to podcasts um, you can also find Austroads in your podcast app all right, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today. Uh, we will first hear from Amy Knowles, who I've just introduced earlier. Amy will talk about the project team. Our next presenter is Drew Gaynor, Principal Consultant uh, at Level 5 Design. Drew will provide an overview of the um, uh, new classification scheme. And our third presenter is David Johnston, uh, consulting engineer from Intelligent Transport Services. David will talk about class 20, uh, non-road travelers, um, and class 19, unmatched. Amy will conclude uh, the presentation and we will have some time for your questions. All right, uh, welcome to all our presenters and over to you, Amy, and fingers crossed, everything is working. Thank you, Ekaterina. Nothing like a uh, shaky start, but we're all um, we're all 
ready to go. And I'm sure from now on it will all go smooth sailing. So thank you to your patience online um, for the slow start. Um, it's really good to be here today to talk about the Austro 23 uh, classification scheme. And it's a called a vehicle classification scheme, but today we're going to talk about the uh, recommendations for the scheme and how we measure active travellers. And that really is possibly one of the most significant changes uh, from the uh, Austroads 94 scheme, which didn't provide any guidance for Austroads members of the industry on how to measure active travellers, non-road travellers as we're calling them today. So today we're going to hear from our consultants, Drew Gaynor from Level 5 Design and Dave Johnston from Intelligent Transport Services on how we came up with this uh, new scheme. So then I'd like to thank, thank Drew and Dave for all their work on the project and also thank and call out the project control group who worked on this project for a number of years. So they did a lot of extra work um, above and beyond their day-to-day -day responsibilities on the project. I'd like to thank them all also just to highlight that there are more people involved than uh, we have listed here today. So really appreciate all your support and efforts. I'm going to pass over now to Drew Gaynor who will provide some background on the scheme before we go into uh, more detail on CORD Active Travellers. Drew. Thank you, Amy, and good morning, everyone. And uh, yes, fingers crossed, I hope uh, we don't have any more technical difficulties in connection. Uh, this is the third instalment in the webinars uh, explaining the 2023 Vehicle Classification Scheme. And as Amy said, we are focusing today on active transport. Um, my part will be uh, explaining what the whole project was about. And uh, for those who have been on the previous webinars, what we've done today is that we've reduced uh, a fair bit of the, the background, particularly about heavy vehicles and so forth, because it's not relevant for today. But if you would like to know the holistic approach to the, what we've done right across the spectrum of vehicles, including active transport, uh, I encourage you to go and look at one of the previous webinars and that will give you that. So mine's a little shortened today. And uh, for those who have been on before, they'll probably appreciate that. So the new Osrose 2023 Vehicle Classification Scheme will explain in, rel in relevance to active transport and, uh, and unmatched vehicles what Osrose 23 is, why change it from 94, what does the new scheme mean for measuring and reporting active transport users. Next slide, please, Katarina. Okay, just a little bit of history of Osrose uh, Vehicle Classification. The original scheme came out in 94 had a 12-bin classification. Uh, the 2006 update was all about vehicles and vehicle lengths. Um, the 2023, what we've done, we've moved to a, a class four uh, category for to get greater granularity. And uh, we've also looked uh, thoroughly at alternative technology pathways and the new classes as we're discussing today. Next slide, please. Okay, so why was the scheme updated? Well, road agencies and industry reported that the 94 scheme, while still relevant, required to be updating for fit for purpose. And one of those obviously is active transport. However, network operations uh, and performance across a range of categories becoming increasingly important. While the 94 scheme is still widely used, additional jurisdictional workarounds were being, uh, were, were developed to, uh, to complement the limitations of the 94 scheme. And traffic counting industry reported that 94 scheme constrained them from exploiting innovations in detection technology to provide a more comprehensive survey. And that technology development and uh, for active transport will be discussed in more detail with Dave uh, later on. Next slide, please. 
Okay, so here are the six key tasks for the update. To review the classification scheme and retain the relevant parts, identify other relevant existing emerging classification schemes around the world uh, that also included active transport, uh, determine a priority vehicle and active transport attributes in, for inclusion, consider new technology developments, again, very important for active transport, but also to assist in counting vehicles uh, and complementing the traditional uh, approaches, develop a hybrid scheme encompassing current and potential new classes and subclasses. We'll talk more in detail about that, obviously, and provide a degree of flexibility and scalability to accommodate unforeseen challenges and what is a rapidly changing road network environment. Next slide, please. Okay, so the key changes in, in the scheme in 2023, uh, we're talking today just about uh, the active transport, so it provides a new level three class and level four subclasses for non-road travellers to require a variety of modes such as pedestrians, skateboards and e-scooters. And some will note that bicycles not there, bicycles are still in level one. I will explain the reasons for they were retained in level one uh, with a subcategory. Uh, later on, Dave will talk in, in greater detail about that. Next slide, please. Okay, so for those who have not been on the, the previous two webinars, just a little bit of background about how we how we undertook what was quite a comprehensive, uh, detailed and challenging uh, um, scheme to update. So we had the scheme scan around the world to see what was the, the cutting edge uh, uh, approach to, to counting uh, movement of vehicles, pedestrians and the like. We undertook the stakeholder consultation, then went into a SWOT analysis and then a, a logical stepping out of, of the process, analysis of options, options development, developing a draft extended scheme, then moving back into validation of that scheme. We'll talk more about how we worked with our project working group on that and then where we are today with the final scheme for implementation. Next slide, please. Okay, in consultation, there were 41 entities that were either interviewed or surveyed. We had a very, very good response of 35. You can see there the broad spectrum of people that were that were into that were interviewed or surveyed: road agencies, government, national organ, transport organisations, local government, very important. Uh, suppliers of hardware and software detection, broader industry developing, supporting, and using outputs and traffic surveys, industry associations. We spoke to uh, to uh, some bicycle associations and 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 others that were relating to this area, owners and users of existing and planned classification schemes. Next slide, please. So we're only going to focus today. There were lots and lots of feedback about strengths and weaknesses of the scheme. As I said, we're not going to talk about the the vehicle, light vehicle, and heavy vehicle once a day. But the weaknesses in the 94 scheme relevant for today was requires more granularity in class one to differentiate bicycles and motorcycles, and then also include pedestrians, cycling, e-bikes, scooters, and the like. It does not include, mo it, the old scheme did not include mobility vehicles, and new technologies can collect additional object attributes. This data may contribute to new or modified classification methods. Next slide, please. Excuse me. So some of the challenges in delivering this, well, there were three key points 
which we just briefly wanted to touch on today. There was a verification workshop with road agencies, the impacts workshop with road agencies, and then further data ver verification. Next slide, please. So when it came to the verification workshop with road agencies, the object was of this workshop was to verify the options identified and how they'd be incorporated. And there were five key points that we addressed there, and you can see them there, the features to be retained all the way through to transition issues. Uh, so we just had to work through those in the first instance, and then we moved to the next stage of verification. Next slide, please, Katarina. So we had an impacts workshop with road agencies. And so what this was all about was, here was the draft scheme. Let's have a look at how we would actually, uh, how those impacts would, would impact on, uh, on agencies. So there were four assessment criteria. So the effort to adopt these, transition approach, uh, timing, and what would the cost be? Next slide, please. Okay, so options development, uh, there was a verification scheme. I just should mention there was a verification part in that. But um, what we were, we're focusing on were these options development relevant to active transport for today. So we've kept it tight uh, for this presentation. Provision of class for class 20 for non-road users, provision of class run max vehicles. What, what we mean by that is that that can be right across the spectrum. It could be heavy vehicles, light vehicles, or it could be even elements within active transport where it's difficult to uh, uh, to to have a subcategory for, for this type point in time. So we might put it in there and then as a catch-all and then later on we'll we'll review that and, and that can be updated by road agencies and Ausroads into a, into a separate class four. So using alternative measures and sensors need to be more granular in those classes and backward compatibility with the 94 scheme. And that's really important. That means about capturing already uh, data pre this update and moving forward with the subclasses and how you can you can aggregate that data and then you can you can have continuity of of data stretching well back into the past and then moving forward and Dave will talk more about that and how it's relevant for active transport later on in class 20. Next slide please. So just quickly about how how the scheme looks now if those who have not already seen the new chart. So we have our original class one uh, level one and then we have our original level level two and three, although there was some work done on level three in terms of you know updating the axle groups and so forth. Then we have this level four class that we've put in here, and that's where the granularity is. And so I'll show you the class uh, the class twenty granularity in the next slide in a moment. But if you have a look, if you sorry, Katarina, if you just go back, I just wanted to mention you can see there class level. Uh, class 101, which has got the bicycles in there and how that's been split out with motorcycles. And Dave will talk a bit more about that later on. Sorry, next slide now, please, Katarina. And so here's in the scheme at uh, at the last, uh, the last page is the class 20. And you can see how we've introduced that and in our various subcategories. We've got uh, six, six subcategories uh, in level four that we can, we can, we can get some granularity about which is really important. Um, I haven't included in there, just above this in the scheme is the class 19 unmatched vehicles, but that's okay. It's just a, a single line at the moment because nothing's actually in there at the moment. Okay, next slide, please. Oh, sorry, uh, that's all I have. I'm sorry, I thought there was one more slide. 
So Dave now is going to uh, take over the presentation and talk specifically about some of the detail in, in those classes 20 and 19. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Drew. Uh, just confirming the handover went okay there, Katerina? Yes, it's working. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us today and uh, we'll just go through some of the detail of some of the decisions behind uh, behind the new scheme and some of the detail of how it, how it works. Um, so firstly, we'll, we'll just have a, a, another look at um, at the uh, the class here that was been introduced, class 20. Now you'll notice um, in the scheme there's this high level class at level three, which is class 20, and we've got the new level four, which breaks it down into subclasses. And the idea being that um, all you can either classify at level three or level four here. So we've introduced these new classes, and you can see we've got pedestrians in 2001. Um, skaters, skateboards, segways, 2002, scooters, e-scooters, 2003, mobility scooters and wheelchairs, 2004, animals, horses, dogs, 2005, and VAU clusters, so a cluster of, of uh, vulnerable road users. Um, we'll touch on each of the, on those a little bit more as we go through the section. But one of the key points that um, uh, Drew touched on was this new class. Um, Theoretically, you could put the bicycles inside their bicycles and e-bikes. They could have gone in class 20 or class one, both one, both on-road and non-road. And um, we've kept the bicycles and e-bikes in class one for backward compatibility of the historical counts. So if we, we look at the next slide to sort of have a look at that. So when we look at the backward compatibility need, there's a lot of downstream processes that we're using the current Austroads uh, level three class counts. So for class one, the data that comes through in class one is used for a lot of different applications. And if we moved the e-bikes and bicycles out of there, then the historical data would have started to have problems in how it was being used and incompatibilities introduced. So um, it's been kept as a subclass of the original short vehicles class for both the bicycles, e-bikes and the powered motorcycles. So that you can see level one, uh, which is classification by length, uh, that's retained. And level three, which is the 12 bin classification, that's retained as well. And this also, as we're adding this, allows us for the level four classifications, use alternate technologies to provide this level of granularity and using different technologies other than axle-based in some cases where it's needed. We'll touch on that a little bit more with the emerging technologies coming through. So just another point there that if we had moved those bicycles and e-bikes, it would have broken the compatibility and this was referred to the project working group and it was pretty much a unanimous decision to say we need to retain backward compatibility, otherwise we would have had many flow-on impact on the existing processes that use the counts that would have needed to change. So the new class 20 has all the other non-road travellers but the structure of the data still allows us to do a vulnerable road user report, for example, that will give us everything from class 20, which includes 2000 through to, two, uh, to, 2000 through to 2006, plus then 
classes 101 and class 102. So the granularity gives us flexibility to meet some of these other needs. So nothing has really been, been lost in that regard. When we look at the emerging technologies, um, it was pretty clear that the original 1994 scheme was all based around axles and identifying axles and groups of axles. So therefore the sensors that were being supported primarily were the infrared beams, the piezo and, and way in motion, the loops, and um, then Doppler radar uh, was able to be added when they added the level one classification because Doppler radar was capable of measuring the length of a vehicle, not necessarily the axles, and give that level one four bin classification. So you can see the, the historical levels were effect very much tied to a specific set of technologies uh, that were being uh, used for, um, for, for each of those levels of classification. But we've got a number of emerging technologies which provide alternate pathways. So we've got, for example, automatic number plate recognition. Um, we've got telematics, including you know, the Intelligent Access Project and, and also the emerging cooperative ITS sort of falls into that category. We've got also the video and AI and LiDAR and AI, and, and these are the ones that are in particular relevant going forward for, um, for the non-road traveller classification. But you can see over on the right there just an example of the alternate pathways, just using, for example, the, um, the, the number plate recognition, where if you can collect the number plates off the vehicles on the road, you can do a match of that with the, um, the registration data to identify the make and model of a vehicle. So that way you're retaining, there's no privacy concerns, it's just after make and model data, which gives you a level four classification inside the scheme. So it's these kind of alternate pathways. And there's also down the bottom there, a recommendation for a per vehicle or per object data capture, data structure as a standard. We'll talk a little bit more about going forward as well. So we'll just um, have a, a brief look then at some of the different alternative technologies that um, are available for collecting data. You'll see um, a lot of the existing ones uh, across the top with the loops, the infrared beams uh, that's used, um, the piezo and way in motion, the Doppler radar, and then there's also video and infrared, which includes AI, we've got LiDAR, ANPR and telematics. And you can see that each of those different sensors is able to collect different data about each vehicle or each object in the system. And some of the data allows other data to be derived using external data sets, such as that example with ANPR, being able to be leveraged to get effectively the dimensions and um, wheelbase and, and various other attributes of a vehicle. So what we were identifying is that more and more the choice of data collection technology used is being best guided by the t data that the task actually needs and the accuracy that's needed. And this is where a per vehicle data standard is going to be very beneficial going, going forward because having a standard way to store all of the attributes that any of the technologies can collect about an object will serve us well going forward to create standards in this area for, for um, better data management and also provides pathways for keeping the scheme current that we'll touch on in a, in a moment. Now, we're aware that um, 
some may not be as familiar with some of the, the newer technologies, video and LIDAR, so our apologies if we're preaching to the converted here, or uh, you know already, but we thought it appropriate to just touch on um, what's possible at the moment. And so we're mostly aware just the significant advances in AI have leveraged the relative cheap cost of cameras to provide the new methods for data collection. And um, this gives us the ability to collect a lot of data and being helpful in particular for pedestrians, which don't have axles <laughs> and don't fall under the existing classification scheme. But you can see example on the right there, a video of Plus AI, cur courtesy of OpenCV, um, of how objects can be identified and tracked through the network. Now, it's, it's worth understanding that the location and angle of a camera has significant impact on the accuracy of the classification, location and dimension measures and speed acceleration measures. So it's possible that changing your camera position may improve one measure and degrade another. So these factors need to actually be reflected in our data collection method. So for example, a camera placed very high looking down on pedestrians moving around will give you uh, the highest accuracy of, of where uh, these people are moving and uh, and what speed they're traveling but it'll be less accurate in telling what whether that person is on skates or, or on a scooter or or uh, is an adult or a child when they're looking top down whereas if you move the camera to the side then you'll get a better reading on on what that uh, person is, whether adult scooter or what type of traveller they are, but you may lose some accuracy in, in your speed, acceleration, location and dimension. So we thought it's it's worth highlighting that and this will be an evolving area of work where the standards and recommendations as to how to do this uh, will will be evolving and as, as each of the jurisdictions look at it. But needless to say, video plus AI is viable now for class 20 classification and it's still rapidly improving and we'll and we've got emerging standards as to how to best deploy this equipment to get the data quality that's needed so we'll touch on lidar here as well uh, some might not be as familiar with this so lidar is an abbreviation of light detection and ranging it's effectively like a radar that uses light and it returns a point cloud which basically provides a measure of the location of a surface and how much reflectivity it's got. So your, your typical LiDAR that's been used for these applications are rotating LiDAR sensors that have sort of between 16 to 128 lasers and, and are rotating 10 to 20 times per second. So that can give you up to 200 million points per second. And so these, this is called the point cloud. It's a millimetre, each of those is a dot with millimetre accuracy in location. And that location accuracy is governed by the speed of light, which is um, is not changing and that's why it's so accurate. And the range of coverage from the sensor can be up to 200 metres, but your, um, your distance between the point cloud points is going to increase as you get further out distance. So there's a bit of an example of the kind of thing shown below. Um, and there's, there's many ways that the LiDAR can actually be deployed, and, and this is just examples from some that I'm aware of from, uh, from the industry. And what it, what's best depends on the needs of your application, the budget and the site. So just to give you a, a brief example um, of, of uh, three of the possible ways of deploying it, 
and how they impact on quality and coverage. We're not going to go into all the pros and cons of each of these, but this is more to just provide an, a background and to also emphasize the point that it's, it's not sufficient to just say we're going to use LiDAR because how you use it has a big impact on, on the quality of data to, being collected. So the first one top left there is basically where the AI works right beside the LiDAR. You've got an optional camera that can go into there to add value to that. Um, and then out of that, you get a set of tracked objects being produced. The, um, the one below that effectively uses uh, what's shown in the first case there, but adds another step where multiple objects are being merged. And that's sort of identifying where you've got both LiDARs picking up the same object and it sort of resolves where those two different detections resolves them into one. So you get one set of tracked objects out of that, even though you've got multiple LiDARs independently detecting. So that's a multiple with multiple LiDAR plus AI implementation. The one on the right is actually doing the merge, not at the object level after object conversion, it's actually merging the point clouds so that you get um, LiDAR um, points on all sides of each object as they're, uh, as they're passing through the intersection and converting that. And um, that one requires a, a fair bit more bandwidth to get the, uh, the data from the LiDARs on the, point on the corners into the point where they're being merged, whereas the others uh, are using only the bandwidth required for objects from each from each detection unit. So there's pros and cons of each one. We haven't gone into it, all of them, but it's more to say that there's a clear distinction here in how you use the LiDAR as to what quality you're going to get. And it's it's worth having informed users to know uh, that that's a, a point going forward. So if we look at an example, and um, this example comes from a, a trial I was actually involved in in Yarraville where there was four cameras and four LIDARs. And you can see there's a, a ped crossing uh, visible in the two cameras in the corners there. This one will replay over and over again, where you can see um, detection of uh, and conversion of objects for uh, two bicycles and three pedestrians walking across there. If you look inside the objects that are moving past, you can actually see the point cloud dots inside it. And then you've got a polygon on the painted on the road, which is the polygon that's determined from that raw point cloud data. And then the, the square box kind of that's gone there identifies the dimensions associated with that object as it goes through. So in this case, you can clearly see that pedestrians, bicycles, um, motorcycles, scooters, mobility scooters, animals and vulnerable road use clusters were able to be identified using dimensions. And this video just shows you know, some of those examples. Some of the other data that can be used from this is um, you know, the, what the example shown on the bottom left there diagram, which is a report that shows where pedestrians stepped off the curb and into a live traffic lane and trajectories are available. So it's this isn't as much to sort of talk about this, this particular deployment of LIDAR, but it's more to show that this is also a viable method of, of collecting data today. And um, this is the kind of information that's able to be collected so that to meet this need, particularly for the active transport. So. 
when we look at the um, LIDAR object characteristics, how do you do the classification? And so part of the validation process uh, in the project was we actually did an exercise using the six months of LIDAR data from that Yarraville site to determine the optimum boundaries between the object types to minimise error. Now, like most of the other classification exercises, um, drawing a boundary between different classes using a measurement isn't going to eliminate area, error, but this is where we minimise the error. So in this case, uh, there's a bunch, there's a set of um, measurements that have been included in the standard as an initial set to, uh, of criteria for classifying between the different object types inside, um, inside class 20 here. And of course, it's using uh, 85th percentile speed as well as another attribute to uh, help identify that. Now those, if you're using purely LIDAR with measure, these sort of measurements alone, you're going to have a higher error rate than if you used, for example, camera plus AI. But this is where the evolution of the technology is, is actually going to help us going forward because more and more we will be um, using, I believe, combinations of detectors so that you uh, can cover the weakness of one type of sensor with the strength of another. So for example, when you're looking at LiDAR and video, video is strongest where you want to identify what something is, whereas LiDAR is strongest if you want to identify its dimensions and where it is. So, um, and this is part of our pathway going forward, we believe. So the scheme has been created to accommodate that. And if you look down the bottom here, we've got VRU cluster. And this is a, uh, the reason that this exists is because there's a certain point where the individual objects that you see above, pedestrians, skaters, scooters, mobility scooters, and animals, where they get close together and the technology can no longer pull them apart. And uh, whether that be LIDAR or video. And it's interesting that the cooperative ITS standards, uh, which identify these vehicles, and we've got good alignment with those standards as well as different types of objects, also includes a VRU cluster. So it is going to be common for us to deal with the issue where uh, pedestrians and scooters moving around uh, get close together, become a cluster, and then move apart. And um, this will be one of the 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 technology issues that uh, we're going to have going forward, and we'll see how that evolves over time. So when we look at just a, a comparison of the, the two technologies, for example, uh, that are being used in this case at the moment, camera plus AI and LiDAR plus AI, camera's got a, a clear cost advantage because of just the volume of investment historically over the last decades. And existing cameras that we've already got out on site can all be used with post-processing for this data collection. However, we must recognise that the existing cameras might not be in the ideal locations. You could get places of interest that are occluded by heavy vehicles and things like that. And there are also the emergence of new camera plus AI units available, which is a, a, a good development in that area. So that's coming through. So LiDAR plus AI in terms of availability on the site, it's a more expensive um, solution. The, um, 
the investment that's been made in for LIDAR for autonomous vehicles hasn't yet produced the, the volume quantity to drive those prices down. But solid state LIDARs may have an impact there, but it's still some years away before the price point is, is reached for that. So the key point there with LIDAR for your availability and coverage is to choose the LIDAR for the required range and coverage and locate it appropriately. The impact of occlusion, um, the data quality for a camera might be affected, a single camera, by large vehicles and mast arms also between the camera. The higher you put the camera, the more mast arms and other things that may actually interfere, even though you're getting a, a better downward view on the intersection or the area you're collecting data from. So the higher camera gives better object tracking and less occlusion, but a low camera gives better object identification. Whereas the occlusion issue is, is uh, is reduced when you use multiple LIDARs down at the road level because you're looking at each object from both sides of it. Each LIDAR can look at a maximum of two sides of each object that's producing and if you merge that together then you can get point cloud around the whole object. In terms of coverage, um, the other thing to note is a lens on the camera constrains the field of view and so if you're interested in the conflict zone you can probably get one approach per camera as part of the coverage so you'd need multiple cameras if you're interested in all approaches using the that technology and then you've got the issue of of identifying which is the same object in multiple cameras across the technology in order to track it through from one to another. So that's another challenge there. Whereas a multiple LIDAR plus AI system allows you to actually create an extensible coverage through the merge point cloud data before you convert it into objects. And that can be quite large if you want to cover a whole approach or um, an area of interest. Object classification. Um, so camera is very good at, at all object types because it's trained by AI. Uh, LIDAR is not as good, uh, classification by measurements, uh, but then we've got the opportunity there of, of using both at some sites. Then the measurement accuracy camera, well, typically a sort of plus or minus uh, 20 centimetres, maybe better than that, and speed and acceleration within 5%, whereas LIDAR starts off with a much better initial accuracy because that's the laws of physics on the speed of light that's giving you a very accurate points on there. So it, just covering off just the pros and cons of there to assist in some guidelines going forward for choosing technologies. We've got a class two for unmatched vehicles in the um, in the system, and it basically is allowing us to give us somewhere to put um, vehicles or objects that don't fit into any other class. And uh, this has been a historical problem where either these were discarded from the scheme or parked nominally in one of the 12 classes in the Austroad scheme. Now in adding this we've identified there's a danger that it becomes a catch-all bucket that ends up accumulating over time lots and lots of things that really we need to do better with and the danger of the creep in the number of vehicles or objects uh, in class 19 has been recognised and this is why we've got this recommendation for a standardised data structure for storing all of those attributes. We've just given a typical example at the right of the kind of data structure we're looking at for, you know, including for vehicles, whether it's a drive type of diesel, petrol, LPG, electric hybrid, hybrid that could come into play for scooters, whether it's an electric e-scooter or a, or, a, um, or a manual scooter, these sorts of things. And that's, that's a piece of work that's been recommended, uh, which 
for for the next steps, which leads me into uh, the next slide as to where to from here. So we've got a number of steps for road agencies uh, today um, to uh, proceed from here. So we're recommending that the implementation of a minimum viable product system for storing and reporting classification data, that can proceed today and it does. there's no loss in any existing use of the classification scheme in how it's been structured. And then with a transition to future data management to fully or partially implement it based on each jurisdiction's needs. So parts of it can be granular, granularly applied as the need arises in each jurisdiction. And then at the bottom there, ongoing development and trials of the alternate technologies for classification and for object data capturing, including video and AI and LIDAR and AI. So there's already a lot of work happening in, in a number of jurisdictions in this area and that's why we're asked to sort of look at it for this scheme. Austroads going forward is going to work with the jurisdictions to undertake a proof of concept which is uh, underway and that involves collaboration with uh, industry to um, and the jurisdictions to look at this extensible per object data storage standard to uh, really make that it will help us assist with future proofing to validate the scheme on a larger scale with a much larger data set we've um, only used smaller data sets to date and this if we spread that across multiple jurisdictions and uh, get that input then it will go forward but what we're saying here at the moment is that there's nothing stopping the minimum viable product for this being implemented now. The only thing these validations will change is the specific boundaries that are recommended for between the different systems initially, in between different classifications at level four initially. And so that's just a database entry that might be updated in the scheme. And then finally, they investigate potential for an ANPR-based classification scheme for vehicles as part of the proof of concept. So if we look at minimum viable product, this is what it will look like for uh, the active transport class 20. So if, uh, for example, you've got a video or LIDAR data collection system, then it will be collecting data and identifying where you've got pedestrians, skaters, scooters, mobility scooters, and you can see an example there. And you'll note class 2000 is effectively the catch-all which says, if we can't identify what type of active transport it is, then the count will be stored in class 2000. So it's still under the class 20 summary. And we're making a distinction in when we import the data into the system, which you'll see under the minimum viable product data store and reporting block in the middle, that the data store there has got class 2005 has got a null value in it as distinct from a zero in class 2002. The zero means we can measure these with the technology we use, but we found none of them. Whereas the null means the technology we used was not able to actually measure these. And it's an important distinction so that when you revisit the counts in future, you know the difference between a zero, we, didn't, we were able to count them, but we didn't see any, and or, we weren't able to measure them and those ones are going to be in class 2000. So that's an important distinction going forward. So you'll see then in the reports, you can report at class 20, which gives you the sum of all of them, which says we've got 70 travelers or the individual level four granular classes. So going forward, 
one of the keys to keeping the classification scheme current with minimum effort is twofold. It's reducing the time and cost of identifying required changes and reducing the time and cost of then implementing those changes. Now, we believe that the architecture of the, the data storage system and classification scheme that's been recommended is effectively reducing that implementation cost going forward. But in terms of identifying the changes, there's some things we can do to, to reduce that cost. That data collection standard that we referred to is one of the key things there because it will allow us to identify everything that's being collected in, for example, class 2000 or even in class 19. What is it that's emerging in there? What are we getting a lot of? What needs are emerging where we may have to look at creating new level four classes to pick up those objects and give us a better classification on those? to provide a pathway forward and as we're proceeding with collecting the data, we're actually collecting the data to help us make that call and to make the review of this classification scheme uh, able to occur more frequently than sort of 1994, 2006 and then now because we're going to need to update more frequently because of the changes of what we're seeing in the fleet and also the changes in emerging technology. So. That's where uh, the data standard helps us keep class 19 from becoming the catch-all, but also helps us with the actual AI implementation because where AI can't identify an object, this helps us create a training data set to address the AI training issues going forward so that we can then have continual improvement. So at this point, we've covered uh, the technical issues we wanted to address and I'll hand back to Amy for the, um, for the concluding remarks. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Drew. Uh, I feel like it's really positive that we can present this agreed scheme, which has been approved by all uh, Austrates members. But I think it's important to recognise this is fundamentally a very new a situation, a new opportunity, um, in that we there was previously no agreed approach for recording active travellers. And, and while everyone on this call is very much, I'm sure, an agreement on the importance of being able to better record and report on active travellers. We probably are noticing that the wider community is also um, increasingly understanding and thinking it's important to plan for these for these users. So this means there's going to be more and more business needs and opportunities for uh, the scheme to be to be addressed going forward, and more and more technology solutions which which can answer these questions. So we we have a uh, a scheme which has been approved by all the Austroads members, as I mentioned. Um, we're expecting that going forward, we may well keep uh, reviewing and refining it as, um, as there are more opportunities to use new technologies and to, to make sure that it's answering the business questions that our Austroads members need. So just going forward onto the next slide, I would like to call your attention to the, the all the fine research behind this the scheme. There's two documents here, these QR codes. The one on the left is the, the scheme and the one on the right is the research report behind it. And those could both be downloaded for free from the Austroads website. Uh, next slide, please. So yes, we're going on to the questions and I can see we've got some great questions online. I, I suspect we probably can't answer all the questions today. And most questions that we don't get managed to get through today, we will follow up with um, afterwards. But I might uh, just start perhaps with a question for 
Dave, I think, um, and there's a few questions actually around slide 36. So if it's possible to go to slide 36, please. And one of the questions we've had, Dave, is um, was were thermal or infrared or thermal cameras covered in the technology comparison exercise? Uh, yes, we, we considered them as part of the, uh, the general range of camera. Uh, issues. The, the benefit of the thermal cameras is that it eliminates a number of issues of the standard camera, for example, things like shadows and um, in adjacent, like what, historically one of the issues was with a normal camera is a shadow from a, a vehicle turning a corner could produce a, an equivalent vehicle uh, turning parallel to it and the thermal camera would eliminate that. So it, um, it doesn't uh, preclude the thermal but in, from a technology perspective and a capability and a pros and cons, uh, strengths and weaknesses perspective, it is more like uh, the existing camera technology. So whether it's thermal or otherwise, um, there's a similar set of issues there, but a thermal camera might actually perform a bit better than a normal camera. Thanks, Dave. And another question around on slide 36 was around um, how, uh, now, is it possible for LiDAR cameras to be used for temporary traffic surveys at the moment? Is that actually happening or is it, is it, is it yet to happen in, in practice? Um, LiDAR has been, I've actually been involved in a project uh, which did this. Uh, there's a paper available if anybody wants to be in touch on it that used LiDAR mounted on tripods and multiple LiDAR at intersections to do um, safety surveys of intersections. So there is, um, there are some projects that have used portable LIDAR and um, temporary LIDAR and there's a number of, like there's another project that was done in Victoria on the, um, recently with uh, Victorian DOT at one of the uh, interchanges around the freeway that used a permanent install as well. Not as much on the temporary, but the only one I'm aware of that's used the temporary is, is the project I was involved in. So if you're interested in that, um, feel free to be in touch because we've got some details about how that was used and what was capable of. Probably too big a topic to go into here. And I, and I think another good, good question, a good point is, um, does the, the location, I think I know the answer, but does the location affect which of these is the better option, Dave? I mean, would it, would it be better to use, um, say for example, if you're using a, a surveying a pedestrian mall, it, it might be a, one choice is more, more logical. What's your, your feeling on that? Yes, a, um, this is where the, the strengths and weaknesses of the different technologies really do come into play because you've always got the question of mounting points as well and where you can get communications to, which then constrain where you can put the equipment. If you're going to set up something, for example, permanently, you need the communications. If you're setting up something temporary, then you've got other constraints. So the range of different things that are constraints are and the range of locations is quite large. So it, it very much requires a per site analysis. And it also impacts on what are your priorities of what you're trying to collect. That may also, we've found in deploying multiple LIDARs, affect where you put the LIDARs in order to strengthen the data collection in one aspect versus a different aspect. And the same applies for cameras, um, where you locate them principally to try and minimize the occlusion because it's a single sensor system. So you want to try and, and get the best view of all the objects without having uh, small objects hiding behind large objects. And that tends to be one of the biggest um, 
biggest factors that govern the location of of any sensor. Thank you, Dave. I might have I'll find one for Drew now. I think there was a question here, Drew, um, and someone's asking, and I, how have you had any feedback from the industry about using this, the scheme? Are they able to, to um, implement it now? And I think yeah, um, you, you might be able to talk to some of the discussions you've had with was it with Metro Count um, on trialing the scheme. I can tell you the exact question was, uh, do we expect that Metro Count and the like would update their software for Austro's 23 soon? Yeah, well, when we were going through the verification, there was a slide that wasn't in there today, but for the for the, for the the people that were on early, um, previous ones, we were talking heavy vehicles and light vehicles. We were going through a validation process of a range of, of issues that needed further analysis. And one that comes to mind is the, is the axle uh, spacing of uh, of, uh, of uh, dual cab vehicles 3.25 and just creeping into 3.75. I'm not going to go into detail, but there were thresholds like that that we needed to we needed to do further work on. And main right, and then after we did that from three jurisdictions, we had Transmetric involved in in that analysis. Then there was further work done through Main Roads and Metro Count. To actually go through and validate further some of those particularly tricky ones so there was further information and so MetroCount was involved with that but in collaboration with Main Roads looking at some of those those uh, the grey areas of the threshold we were trying to narrow down and get a more more accurate. So does that answer the question Amy? I think it does but I, we, can, we can certainly put that in the chat as well. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that Metro Cal was was involved, and there would be an expectation that that uh, people would use this, uh, given that there was such a, a thorough process with road agencies and uh, a wide range of of stakeholders to actually come. It, it was never easy. It's a very very complex issue, and there were always little bits that were a bit grey at the edge, and we've nailed those down significantly. But as there was talking about the proof of concept, there's a little bit more work to be done on those, but. We're confident that we've we've reached them at the right level now. Thanks, thanks, Drew. Look, there's been a, there's been a few questions here. I'm going to try and sort of summarise a few, but I think there's a few questions here around um, what we're seeing on our in our city streets at the moment. Around, for example, multiple riders on a single e-scooter. You know, how would the scheme work for something like that? Um, or how do you tell the difference between um, standard bikes and e-bikes? Another question about the, the, the observers talking about being in South Bank on Melbourne and all these electric food delivery vehicles and you know what's the way forward for those for those types of different different challenges for our for our road managers? Yeah, some of these questions um, have have come up and in the early days of the technology, or I suppose not too early, but to identify some of these is it can be very tricky. The easiest one to pull some of these apart is how quickly some acceleration attributes might be, say, for example, for the difference between an e-bike and a bike, there might be some parameters there, but you're not always going to see that in the data and the video analysis isn't always going to be able to identify the difference between a uh, an e-bike and a normal bike just because of the, um, you know, the, the difference visually is, is 
is becoming less and less in some instances. So we acknowledge that there's going to be um, limitations of the technology, but over time, the improvements may well be made in in this regard. Um, so, but it doesn't ne necessarily negate the need to create the uh, the scheme and to uh, allow us to begin collecting, knowing that there is going to be some error in the scheme um, and some attributes we can't yet fully measure. Can Can I just add there that we've recommended that the scheme needs to be updated on a regular basis. We think at least every five years to introduce what is what is a very uh, a changing landscape in in a whole range of vehicles, all the way up from uh, oversized overmass loads, all the way down to uh, pedestrians and e-scooters. And so, you know, there's going to be emerging and disruptive uh, technology coming through all the time in terms of what was just discussed about, you know, variations on e-scooters. And so they're they're things that with the level four classification, the subclasses, they can just keep getting added to as they seem to be they need to be differentiated separately from another one. So it's it's something that we've recommended that it needs to now go under a regular review. And active transport is one area where there is all sorts of things that are going to be, that will be emerging that we can't foresee at the moment. And we'll, we'll have to, and if it needs to be counted, then that we'll need to get greater granularity. I think you're right, Joe. I think it's about, it's about having the business need and making sure that the scheme is, works for the for the business needs that, that it has to, to. So if we need to understand um, those sort of subtleties, we need to be able to uh, think, consider amending it, I guess. But in the meantime, there is um, the, the ability now to, to, with this new scheme, to provide a lot more insight than we previously had. I'd like to just move on to another question which has come up from a few people, and they're pointing out um, that they, they, they currently use uh, pneumatic tubes to do some of the, to answer some of these questions um, and they'd like to understand how that was considered in terms of monitoring scooters and bicycles and all the other axle vehicles. And how, what's your, um, how, how, did, how did that feed into the development of the scheme and is it, um, is it a... Yes, um, okay, thanks for that. The, the question there, pneumatic tubes, um, yes, I didn't have it in the table there, unfortunately, but effectively that's an axle measurement tool and it's identifying uh, a pair of axles or and the spacing between them. So that feeds into the, to the standard mechanisms that are available there for any axle-based identification of objects. Um, we need to identify the fact there that um, where it's using axles, for example, for the, for skaters and scooters, um, that there is a there can be a significant overlap. There's some quite long skateboards out there, and which have axle lengths of a similar to the scooters. So this is part of why there's a recommendation here to go into ongoing trials of the technology um, with the various jurisdictions to actually continue to evolve these characteristics that we've put here for the different technologies as to how to distinguish these apart. And part of the exercise we did, for example, for vehicles, to give a parallel examples, in the class one, we've got sedans and wagons, we've got SUVs in a separate class four, we've got four wheel drives in a separate class four, and we've got light um, and, and other trucks, uh, other short vehicles in, in a separate class four. And they are unable to be dif differentiated on axle length alone because there's too much overlap 
between the distributions of axle length between those classes. So the way the, the classification scheme deals with that is it says you can't use axle length to distinguish between these level four classes. So if you're using axle an axle length based system, you can't put, because um, the overlap's too big, you've got to put it in the general class 100 for class one or class 2000 for class 20, because we can't distinguish between them with sufficient reliability. But that's where the video option may give opportunity to pull these apart using uh, the video plus AI to better identify the kind of traveller. So we're trying to enable multiple pathways, but also enable situations where, for example, you might use multiple sensors, which may be useful for actually creating a training data set for your video plus AI and using a common uh, way of storing that information to enable that to be done much easier and, Im and improve the AI technology going forward. And if I can add there, use, using one of the heavy vehicles as an example, there was, you know, where it's traditionally, you know, tube uh, counting via axle configurations and, and groupings. Um, there were some in there with the new types of trucks that are going, that, that are on the, on the roads at the moment that it becomes quite difficult just using piezo and so there was a complementary there were some suggestions that you could use complementary technology to actually uh, make sure that you've got a, a degree of accuracy on those so that's i guess what we're saying and it certainly applies for active transport that you know you can use multiple technologies to get the most accurate count Thanks, thanks, Drew. Thanks, David. I, I'm going to just throw one more question. I know we're over time, but I think we, because we started late, I think that, you know, it'd be good to um, go. There are more questions. We're not going to be able to answer them all today. There's lots here. Thank you, everybody. Um, I, my question I was going to throw to you is um, about distinguishing between clusters of pedestrians and clusters of cyclists, which is an ex interesting question, I thought. So you've got the vulnerable road user cluster in the scheme at the moment. Um, could you tell if it was clusters of pedestrians or clusters of cyclists? And I can imagine the business need that people would need to answer that question. So I'm just interested to see what you think, Dave. Yeah, um, yeah, very interesting question. One of the clear differences between um, the LiDAR and video technology and that which has been used historically is that historically a lot of the um, counters that we've got were at a single location that they were capturing account at this point. Whereas the video plus AI allows us to see what happened leading up to the formation of a cluster. So if the cluster appears in the range of your data collection as a cluster, then it might be difficult. But if it breaks apart or if it comes together as a cluster, say for example, you've got a, uh, a pedestrian crossing, and you, you can track the individual object into the cluster, well, then that gives you information. So the systems that store this data could be enhanced to include this individual became part of this cluster, and then later on, we saw an individual break out from that cluster and go away. So it all depends on what the technology is able to achieve, but there's some things which might be very difficult. Say, for example, you've got an, an an adult standing there and a child runs up to them and, and jumps into mum's arms, you're never going to be able to pick that apart with whatever technology you're using. So we're dealing with limitations that are going to be here. We can push the limits with our um, with the technology and see how far we can go. But I don't believe that the, 
the cluster issue is ever going to be eliminated, but we can get more information about the makeup of that cluster by tracking them in and tracking them out and, and figuring out after the event what was actually inside there. But some of the cluster, if it stays as a cluster the whole time, we may not be able to pull it apart. Thank you, Devon. That's a, that's a great great spot to end. Thank you for all your um, uh, your questions, everybody online, um, and we will follow up with a response to those questions that later on. I'm just going to pass over to Ekaterina now to close us off. Thank you, Ekaterina. Thank you very much, Amy and Drew and Dave, and thanks to everyone uh, for being with us today. I only have a couple of slides to finish the session. As you can see on the screen, we have two webinars left for this year. So if you haven't registered already, um, uh, please visit our website for more information and to register. Um, and as usual, as we close out today's session, uh, there will be a questionnaire that will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, it really helps us to know what you liked or did like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Um, once again, today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.